a podcast where we talk about talking about grief. I'm your host, Ellen Schwartz. In this episode of Sorry for Your Loss, I talk with my dear friend, Erin, and I have just one short thing to say before we get into our interview, which is, yes, this is a long episode. I know, but it's good. And it's long because Erin was never out of things to talk about. I think it's fascinating to listen to because I know and I love Erin. And while you might not connect with her the way I do, you do have an Erin in your life and they either need you now or will need you at some point. So if you feel a bit overwhelmed by the number of minutes on your screen right now, know that I hear you. And if you're just not up for it today, I get it. Um, But I encourage you instead to keep this in mind the next time you have an opportunity to talk to someone about their grief. Make the time, listen well, ask questions. And just a note that this podcast isn't about making you comfortable. It's about learning how to stretch yourself and to show up for the people in your life and to listen to them when they need you to. The next episode, however, is also with Erin. It's roughly 20 minutes that I cut out from this one. So where this one is feeling long, could have been longer. However, um, in that episode, that's where she outlines things that she found helpful when she was in the throes of working through her mom's death, both emotionally and logistically. So it has a slightly more practical lens to it. If you're looking for steps you can take um, if you're trying to help someone who is grieving, that's going to be a perfect listen for you. So without introing any longer, because this is a long episode, here is my interview with Erin. I would love for you to tell me a bit about your mom and what was like, what was she like? What would you love for the world to know about her? And then also kind of walk me through, um, the experience that you had with her death. Yeah. Well, I feel like we're starting with the hardest part here because <laughs> I think if there's anything that still kind of brings up emotion for me, it's just talking about, um, sorry, talking about my mom. Yeah. Um, and I think, uh, the reason is just because, um, she was just such a great person. Um, and, uh, you know, people just really loved her. She was just, um, a lot of fun and really funny. Um, she would just, she loved to say, oh, that person's a scream. (laughs) And I think, you know, she was a scream. She was just a hoot. She's just, um, always, um, you know, really smart and energetic and interesting. Um, and she loved to kind of collect interesting people, um, just a real extrovert, um, uh, just had a big laugh, um, and she, um, had done some different jobs in her life. She was a, um, she had a, a degree as a teacher. Um, my parents were in the military and had lived, uh, different places around the world. She was, a she was involved in, um, civil service and the military, um, but in her career, um, became a teacher for, um, gifted students and had a degree in gifted education and kind of worked her way up to be um, a building administrator and a district administrator, and then eventually be um, um, the director of gifted education for the, a whole state. And so it was kind of fun to watch her kind of continue to grow as a professional um, and to kind of see all the things that she accomplished as a professional woman and as an ed- educator. But, um, uh, you know, I just think 
it was, I always felt really grateful to have her as a mom. She was just very, um, you know, loving and caring. Um, yeah, so I feel like, um, you know, sometimes people will say, oh, like holidays or Mother's Day or something like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sorry for you. Or I feel like you must be sad today. And I just think, you know, um, I think the bottom line for me is that I just feel a lot of gratitude that I had her um, as a mother for, you know, as many years as I did. So that's beautiful. Um, yeah. Uh, and one, um, I think something that's really um, special to me was that I think, um, you know, when I went to college and became an adult, I think my mom and I really made a nice transition from kind of a mother-child relationship to more being friends. And I really felt like she and I were just really good friends. She just, you know, um, just that super important person in my life who, um, you know, who I just love to talk to and spend time with. And um, we, we usually talked on the phone every day. Um, and so, you know, I just, just kind of that, that constant person in your life who knows everything you're up to and kind of knows all the players and your stories and, <laughs> and all that. So I think, um, you know, she was just, just that kind of person for me. Um, yeah, it was. And I think another reason that we were so close, and I would also say I'm, I'm close to my dad. I think it's a, maybe a little different relationship between a father and a daughter, but I'd say, you know, my dad and I also have a great relationship. But um, I think one of the reasons I'm close with both of my parents, too, is that I'm uh, an only child. And I think sometimes as an only child, you... Um, you know, you just become really tight as a family unit as in that um, parent-child relationship is just different when there's just one child. Sometimes I just think you feel more, you feel more individually responsible for your parents. And also um, uh, there's just, I don't know, I think there's just a closeness there that maybe sometimes people don't get in families with a lot of siblings. Yeah. Kind of just the three of you and you can all, I feel like those relationships then are just a lot more on the surface and you know, you kind of would know what your relationship is with your mom and your dad and what their relationship would have been with each other. Whereas like I, you know, I have two siblings and I don't know specifics about what their relationship is with my parents. I know they're good, but I don't know. They're mm -hmm. You know, like, so there is kind of just more mystery, I guess, is why you're, you guys were a good solid unit. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, definitely. I think you're so right that in a family dynamics, every person in that family has a relationship with every other person in that family. And it just makes a giant web of, of relationships. And yeah, when there's only one child, it's just a different, kind of a different dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I just, um, you know, lots of good things about, about my mom, just a creative person. Um, we would always laugh that um, she wasn't very 
organized kind of a person always had a bunch of paperwork around and <laughs> you know she kind of had her own internal system uh right. but uh you know just a just a real a real force in life and um uh, at the same time just being a real nurturing loving person uh and I, I i could just tell when she passed away um you know that she had had an impact on other people yeah so do you mind talking a little bit about kind of that experience you had when she died? I know, I know that it was sudden and unexpected and difficult, but what was your. No, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. Um, and it was, um, I think it was very sudden and, un, and unexpected. So um, she died at the age of 68 and um, she uh, had moved back to Kansas about a year and a half before to retire. She just moved into a house that she was excited about that was going to kind of be her forever, you know, retirement house. Um, she'd had a knee replacement a few years before. Um, she'd had a couple little health bobbles, but on the whole was a very healthy 68-year-old person. Like, um, yeah, I think she took like one or two really routine medications, but, you know, really living a, a normal, vibrant life. And she'd even in her retirement decided to go back to work and mm -hmm. was teaching um, in a school district um, near the town where she was living. Um, and so, you know, basically we had on our hands a very active, normal person who was working at a job and um, she um, was on spring break from her um, teaching job. And um, a week or two before she'd had just a couple funny symptoms where she'd had kind of a, like a lymph node in her neck that had gotten enlarged and, um, went to the doctor and it just, the primary doctor said, oh, I don't know, let's, let's try to get this line to go down. We'll give you some, could be an infection. We'll give you some antibiotics. We'll give you some prednisone, da, da, da. She took all that, still wasn't quite working out. We went to the dentist thinking maybe there was something going on, like in her mouth. We went just to kind of some common sense things and really, you know, it's starting to change a little bit, I think with the prednisone, but it wasn't, it was just kind of like, huh, well, this is weird. Um, and then I had talked to her like on Monday around one o'clock, something was going on in the news that we were laughing about. I'd taken a little break at my desk at work and just was chatting with her and, um, and then, you know, just kind of left it at, okay, I'll talk to you later today or tomorrow. Um, I called her later that night just to say hi when I was on my way to go um, talk to, go meet up with some friends. Couldn't reach her. I thought, oh, okay, she might just be out doing something. She was a terrible stinker about not um, keeping track of her cell phone. <laughs> and I just thought, oh, it's, you know, who knows? Who knows what she's doing? Anywho, couldn't reach her. Kind of thought, eh, that next day I thought, I'm going to try her again, just make sure things are okay. And couldn't reach her. Got a little concerned. I thought, I'm going to try when I get home from work. Couldn't reach her. Finally, I thought, okay, um, I live about an hour from the town that she was living in. And I thought, if I, you know, okay, if I don't hear from her by a certain time tonight, I'm going to drive over there. Because usually she would kind of dock her phone at night. We had a, we made it a rule that she had to at least try to dock her phone at night. And if she'd missed any calls, <laughs> to call people back. Um and so when kind of 10 p.m., when kind of bedtime passed, I thought, I don't know, I feel like something could be wrong. And so I drove um, over there and um, went to her house and found, uh, went inside her house and found that she was 
um, lying on the floor and sort of confused. Things were very disheveled, you know, and I said, mom, did you, did you fall? What happened? And, you know, she just said, I don't, I don't know. I don't feel like my hands were working right. And I just thought, gosh, something has happened. I, it was very scary. I didn't know if she'd been attacked, if someone had broken in, if, you know, she, I didn't know if it was a medical emergency. So anyhow, I called 911 and um, they, you know, got her to the hospital and in the process of all that sort of figured out over the next hour or so that she had had a stroke. Um, and so at this point she was still able to speak. She kind of knew basic things like, you know, who, who, who I was, who the president was. Um, but it was clear that, you know, uh, her brain was injured. Um, and, uh, but as they continued to do some blood work quickly showed that the source of the stroke had been, um, an acute onset leukemia, which meant that there were too many, um, white blood cells in her um, blood and that those are the cells that are responsible for clotting. So the thought was that her blood had become really unstable and that had caused there to be um, a stroke in her brain. Um, so basically she had a cerebral incident, but that was the result of this acute um, uh, leukemia. And um, so we kind of got transferred to um, a large medical center. Uh, and once we got there, you know, they were able to really look into that and talk to us about what was going on. And the word from the doctors there was just that, you know, these two situations were kind of both were, were preventing us from treating the other, that because her blood was so unstable because of this cancer, they couldn't give her um, the medication they would normally give someone to fight a stroke and to go in and, and break up that blood in the brain. Mm. And because she had had this massive stroke, she was also not a candidate for the really difficult, challenging chemotherapy that they would give someone who has leukemia, where they basically bring your immune system down to zero put you in a tent kind of thing and they said you know oftentimes very young healthy people who undergo that type of um, treatment don't make it or only live three or four months and so they said in this case you know it would it just wouldn't be uh, appropriate to even offer wow. that kind of treatment so um you know, and all of this, I felt like it sort of unfolded in stages. You know, we kind of got a piece of information per day um, <laughs> until finally that sort of final news is delivered. So at first I sort of was thinking, okay, my mom's had a stroke. What what can I do to re rehabilitate her? Can I take the next year off of work? Do I need to move in with her? What? How, how could I put my life on hold to help her regain? And instead it just turned quickly more to you know, this is not treatable and we expect her to only live a few days. Um, and so, yeah, pretty shocking to go from someone uh, who was living a, a really vibrant life and kind of felt had had like a little funny thing going on the last few weeks, but otherwise was in, you know, really normal person to um, all of a sudden you have a cancer that we believe started only three or four weeks before. And it's an acute onset cancer that just comes and takes over the body very quickly. And it was also very unusual. 
um, you know, the the person at the at the major medical center said, you know, I'm a highly trained cancer specialist. This is I this is the main thing I do at this hospital is I see patients with, with extreme leukemia. I only see this type of leukemia maybe three times a year. Wow. And so yeah, just a real rare rare thing. Um, yeah. Um, but in some ways. I don't know. I almost kind of think, uh, I, I sometimes I kind of think people's deaths sometimes match their lives. Mm-hmm. And I think my mom was such an energetic person, such a doer, such a big personality and almost kind of fit to me that she kind of had this big dramatic death, you know, <laughs> it was sort of this big thing that happened. It's so different than sort of slipping into old age and sort of being pecked pecked to death by little things you know um I just for her to go from being totally vibrant one day to then having passed away within four or five days um I don't know to me there was almost something kind of um beautiful yeah in that well that's yeah and what a positive way to look at it too but I think you're right I mean it does it totally matches yeah and some of the, you know, I, I also, I also um, you know, when I kind of tell people about this experience, I feel like there were a lot of things that happened in this that I was very grateful for. There are a lot of different ways to lose someone. And um, there are so many little turning points in this story of her death that I felt like were, were real gifts to me. I know that some, it may sound sort of strange to some people to say that, but um you know, just honestly, to start off the fact that I got to her in time, and she didn't, you know, if I'd waited another, I don't know, another period of time to go check on her, and she just kind of died in her home, I think I would have felt a lot of guilt about that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the first thing I'm really grateful for is just that I was able to get to her that we got her to treatment to, you know, we got her to a place where she had care. And, um, you know, I was just grateful for the, I guess, the timing on that. Um, I was grateful that, you know, she was still sort of speaking and, and alert for a period of time that kind of went away somewhat rapidly. Um, but I was, I was glad about that. Um, you know, I was glad that I kind of had that chance to say those heartfelt things that you want to say. And, um, you know, a lot of people in this world don't get that chance. So, you know, that was, um, you know, for me, that just meant, it meant a lot to, to, um, to be able to do that. Um, uh, and then I was just very grateful for the care that we got and the people that we intersected along the way. There was a palliative care doctor at the medical center who um, was just very thoughtful and good about explaining to me what to expect, what was going to happen, what our choices were. Um, and I think that the kind of care and concern that those doctors showed um, it was just remarkable. They were so um, gentle and thoughtful about, um, you know, listening to us and kind of absorbing our um, emotions about what's going on and helping guide us. So really, our you know experience there was just wonderful. And um, then when we we were transferred to a hospice um, center for 
ended up really being just the last 24 hours, but at the time we didn't really know. Um, and the, the people there were great. It was, we were in the exact right place. There are people there who could talk us through what was happening, who really understood, you know, what it meant for a family to be grieving and in crisis. And um, it was just, um, you know, I, I'm so glad. I just felt like everywhere we ended up, um, all of these resources came up to meet us from chaplains to social workers to, you know, all those things. Just um, And every time someone asked me, you know, do you want to meet with the chaplain? Do you want to meet with the social worker? Do you want this? Do you want that? Yes. I just said yes to everything. <laughs> yes. Yes, we do. Yes. I want to talk to them. Yes, I do. And um, I think part of it was my willingness to accept those resources. <laughs> sure. But, um, but it was, uh, um, you know, it just took this sort of difficult time and made it more manageable. Um, and that experience that week, just for me as a person, um, and I know this might be different from some of the other guests that you've talked with since mine was really a journey of being there with my mother and for my mother, um, you know, as she went through that dying process. Um, so when this happened, um, I left uh, my apartment to go check on her ambulance comes to get her we're at the hospital and I think that was like a basically Tuesday night at maybe 11 p.m. so the week just kind of went from there and she passed away on a Saturday and in that whole time I felt like I slept probably six hours total mm -hmm. I mean because I was just always in the hospital room with her little moments where I might fall asleep for 20 minutes but you know it was just a long I think the longest I slept was maybe an hour and a half. Uh, and it, you know, it was just kind of a surreal experience. Um, but I remember listening to, um, uh, I think it was maybe like an NPR interview, maybe a fresh air or maybe it was a TED talk with a neurologist who had suffered a stroke. And she talked about the pr having a stroke and what it was like kind of from the inside of that experience that she really didn't understand language, but she could pick up on the emotion of people around her. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that that was exactly my mom's case because she could, I, it was obvious that she was understanding what people were saying. Um, even though at the end she herself could not um, really speak clearly. Um, but I just remember that flashed in my head and I really wanted to protect the energy around her. And I just thought I want the energy around her in her room, wherever she is to be very calm. I want the people there to be calm. Um, I want to be calm. And so I was just very focused on how do I protect that energy around her, no matter what it is she's experiencing, um, you know, be it, just being in a state having had a stroke or later when she was in more of a coma state, um, you know, I was just sort of looking at um, that energy around her. So I, you know, I didn't use my phone very much. I didn't have cell phone things going off. I, you know, at the end when she was um, closer to dying, um, I didn't really know what to do. I felt like there were times where I talked to her, but I didn't really want to talk just incessantly <laughs> and so it's kind of weird to know what what do you do when you're kind of sitting there with someone um but 
you know, I just sort of tried to let my emotion be my guide. I felt like it was almost like the ultimate um, meditation in that you were, I was just so in the moment. And, um, uh, you know, there were times where I was sort of softly singing. I was doing things to sort of let her know I was there, but without, you know, maybe always talking, um, holding her hand a lot. I, uh, um, and I remember kind of asking like one of the doctors or one of the hospice people, I forget who, you know, what, you know, what, what should I be doing? And I think their answer was really helpful because they said, you know, just kind of imagine this person is sick in bed. What would they normally have wanted when they didn't feel good? Mm-hmm. And it kind of made me feel better because I thought, well, should I be in, in, in the bed holding her? Should I be, you know, what should I be doing? And I thought, you know, I think for her, um, having that presence there was meaningful, maybe holding her hand. But I thought, you know, when she was sick, she didn't really want a lot of people touching her. <laughs> and I thought, so that's okay. You know, so I just kind of tried to follow my gut. And I almost felt like the tireder I got, the more physically exhausted and tired I became, the more I could just totally navigate on this plane of emotion and just navigate by instinct almost. And I almost think it helped me to just be in the moment, to be present with what was going on, to experience what was going on, and to uh, just, um, you know, maybe almost not be not be caught in overthinking in my rational brain about what was happening, because it didn't really feel very rational. <laughs> right. So I think, you know, being just totally sleep deprived almost helped me uh, just, just stay in that raw space that I kind of needed to be in. And we had some family members who are helpful, who my aunt and uncle and cousin came and went and and took some shifts so that I could go take a shower, do other things. But, um, you know, I really, it was important to me to, to be there. Um, So yeah, that was kind of the um, experience. And it was, um, you know, like I said, it was really, upsetting and kind of, uh, you know, sort of shakes, rocks your world. But it was also, there were also a lot of things embedded in that, that I was really grateful for. And that I felt that as much as losing someone could be a good experience, that we had a good experience and that we, you know, gave her a very peaceful uh, death. Yeah. I think that's amazing, honestly. And I think it's, really, I think it speaks volumes of you to listen so well to yourself and to maybe just be able to accept a lot of the help that was around you, whether or not you kind of understood what it was, but that's just, I think that's amazing that you're, you were able to stay so calm because it could so easily have gone the other way. Yeah, well, I think so, and I appreciate that. I, it is kind of one of those things. Later, that one of those out of body experiences. Looking back on it, you just think, "Wow, what, you know, how did I do that, or how did that happen?" Um, and I think losing my parents has always been one of my biggest fears in life. You know, I, and it was almost like when your biggest fear comes to pass, it's sort of that that. Um, no, there's this, a book called Full Catastrophe Living, and it, I, I love that phrase. It's just like well, when we're confronted with the full catastrophe, Hmm. then it's almost like anxiety melts away because it's happening. Wow. Yeah. And I, 
I know, I know, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, one thing I was going to mention that I think helped me during this time too was that um, um, a dear friend um, went to my apartment and got some things for me to have. And one of the things I'd asked for her to get was a journal that I had, that, you know, just kind of an ongoing journal I'd been writing in along with some clothes and other things. And um, I really made a point of, of course, I had a lot of hours where I was sort of, you know, sitting there sort of, you know, keeping the vigil. And I tried to make a point of writing down what I was experiencing and kind of making some notes about what was going on, um, just on an emotional level, just sort of what was I thinking? What was I feeling? Um, but also writing just almost some technical notes about what had happened because I wanted to be able to kind of remember that later, you know, even making a decision about different turning points and what the doctors had told us or what, what was going on. Cause I just almost wanted to kind of have a, a record of what was going on and, and, um, but on a more emotional level, I even wrote down, you know, at different times when she was resting, things I had said to her or that she had said to me, just so that I could kind of keep that and remember it because I didn't want to rely on my memory because I knew I was tired and I knew it was sort of that, that hot, you know, sort of that hot emotional feeling of there's just so much going on. I felt like, um, then that was one thing I really thought was valuable. I haven't looked back on it a lot, but I have at different times and there were a few things in there that I hadn't remembered that actually helped me. It was a, it was a good to remember some things that um, later. And I think that's one piece of advice I'd have for someone who's facing a situation like that is that it's okay to kind of, if you are that kind of person, make some journal entries or notes about what you're experiencing or what's happening or what you're feeling or, or even just a record of the decisions you made and why you made them and the information that was being presented to you in the moment. Because I think sometimes um, as time goes on and our rational brain takes over, we can kind of forget um, what, what was going on in that, in that moment when we're making those difficult decisions um, that are very intuitive and are very gut level. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Well, and it would help you like kind of my, something I've learned as well, just in hindsight, it's like, you make the best decision at that time with all the information that you had, but in hindsight, it's so easy to say like, well, what in the world was I thinking? Why wouldn't I have done that? What happened here? That had to have provided a lot of clarity for you later, even, you know, even yeah. normal decisions, your day-to-day -day decisions. It can be so helpful to just remember that you were just a, you were a human and you made a decision yeah. knowing, what you, knowing what you knew. That's right. That's a, that's a great point, Ellen. That's probably good advice for any, any turning points in life to just sort of make a note to ourselves about, you know, kind of a decision journal almost. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I feel like we could, we should probably like capitalize on that at some point. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Good for us. <laughs> Nobody's allowed to steal that. We're going to capitalize on that. <laughs> that was so much for you to do. And I know that you didn't necessarily do it alone. So I didn't know if you could talk a little bit about who were you relying on or what were some of the things in that time that helped you process or live or kind of get on with the next steps. Get on sounds like, get on with your life. Your mom just died, please. But you know what I mean? 
Yeah, no, that's right. But but to keep moving forward and yeah. and you know, I think for you know, it's hard to it's sort of hard to because I think people have different relationships with their parents. You know, for some, I think losing a parent might be maybe that's more of a second or a third tier relationship in their life. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. It's it's okay for everybody in the world to have a different relationship with their parent and work, everyone will. But I think for me, my mom was really what I would think of as like a first tier relationship in my life that she really was that check in every day kind of person. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that just meant this was a big loss. It was just a really big loss. There was a hole in my life. And um, I think the process of accepting that and, uh, you know, kind of processing that, uh, it just took a long time. And I think some of the sensations of grief are are really interesting. I, do you, would it be all right with you if we talk a little yeah, bit about please. that sort of physically? Yeah, what? And I have a feeling this is not a newsflash that, um, you know, in some of the other conversations you're having as part of this project, you're probably hearing some common things here. So I have a sense I might be repeating what others have said, but, you know, for a listener, maybe that is actually useful information that this, okay. this really is like sort of the uncommon, common experience of grief that as it's happening to you, it's like, whoa, this is so weird, but mm-hmm. everybody kind of goes through it. And one thing I think I really noticed was just being incredibly tired. Wow. Um, you know, and, I think part of it was I had basically been awake for four or five days. Um, I think I had gotten the bare amount of sleep needed to kind of keep my organs functioning and not to be having like hallucinations. But other than that, I mean, you know, I've never before experienced something where I felt so wired, but tired. I was kind of like wired with raw emotion and just exhausted at the same time. But as, you know, as time moved on over the next few weeks, I felt like that tired feeling, it lasted a long time. It lasted maybe two or three months where, you know, some days I would just have to come home from work at, you know, maybe two in the afternoon because I was just tired mm-hmm. and I would sleep, you know, not, not like curl up in a ball, don't wake up for days kind of sleep, but like, gosh, I'm just so tired. I think I'm going to rest. And I would, you know, fall asleep for an hour or two. And then it was like my body just needed that sleep so badly. Wow. Um, so that that was part of it, just feeling this kind of hard to explain tired. Um, I think another thing I noticed that might be tied to that too was just obviously crying a lot. I know that sounds like an understatement, but I think that emotion of grief, um, you know, if you are someone who cries and you feel that you can cry, I think it's such a helpful outlet for that because it's just such a pure, you know, I think those tears are just emotion leaving the body and it's okay to let that happen. And I felt the more I could cry, the better things went, you know, that if I just let myself cry when I felt I needed to, or I felt an emotion, I could do that. I think living by myself actually helped. Because if I just want to be a weirdo and sit around and cry, I could. If I want to do some dishes and cry, then I could. If I wanted to watch a TV show and then cry some more, I could. And there was nobody there to judge that or monitor that. I think it was actually really helpful um, to be able to do that. But a pattern I kind of noticed with the crying was what I would call crying in waves. It was like I would get these big waves of emotion that would come over me, and then it would kind of level back out. 
And in the time where we were in the hospital and the hospice and the days right after, it was like those waves came super close together. Like, you know, I would have a big crying incident. I could kind of calm myself down and be stable for a little while. And then I'd cry again. And it was just happening almost consistently. And then over the days and the months, I felt like that got spaced out and spaced out and spaced out where all of a sudden, maybe I kind of had a little crying incident twice a day. And then eventually I realized I hadn't really cried for a few days. And then I realized, gosh, you know, I only kind of stop and cry about my mom every once in a while. And I think that was, oh, that was to me a sign that, um, you know, my emotions and my mind were kind of healing, but that as that stretched out, but especially in those early days when you've just got those waves of emotions constantly hitting you, it is just exhausting. The only feeling I can relate it to is I remember being a little kid and going to the swimming pool in the summer with my friends and we'd be diving and we'd be splashing around for hours and hours, just boundless energy. And I remember we'd get out of the pool and I was immediately hungry and you just feel mm-hmm. spent, totally tired, like tired from the inside out. Yeah. And that's kind of what I would equate that feeling, that tiredness that comes with grief to because your body's just going through these this constant, um, constantly expending energy on these emotions. Yeah. Well, and I think it's probably, I know it's hard for me to relate because like, I've not been through something that grief stricken to where I understand exactly how much energy goes into processing that emotion or acknowledging it or just being present for it. Yeah. That's yeah. That's That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Just a lot of kind of scientific calories put in (laughs) you know Uh yeah calories put into that yeah um I also felt like my just kind of some foggy thinking and some problems with memory which for me is very different because I'm a pretty linear person I always feel like I always know (laughs) I always know exactly what's going on and so to kind of be someone who really likes to be kind of in command of what's happening to sort of feel like oh huh looks like I did that I have no memory of doing that or Mm I just to sort of have these little fuzzy fuzziness in my mind or not being able to quite compute or remember something that was a different experience for me and I felt like for me that faded fairly quickly but I I think I hear from other people that that can for, uh, for some people that can last a long time um so I think just giving people who are going through grief a little a little um grace and that they might not remember that they did or didn't do that. They might not remember that they told you or didn't tell you, or if they're telling you the story for the fifth time, you know, maybe they, they need to just tell it again, you know? So yeah. I think that's okay to just recognize that. I have a work colleague um, who I don't know well, but who, um, who lost a parent recently. And um, there was just a little mix up at work. It was no big deal at all. But I just remember thinking, thinking, oh, that's funny that that happened. Um, They just weren't someone who normally made mistakes. And then I remembered, oh gosh, they lost a family member a few weeks ago. And I just thought, you know, of course, it was just, it was sort of good information for me then to have as a colleague that, um, you know, gosh, I just totally understood how you think you're functioning, but you might not be as sharp as you normally are for a long time. Yeah. Well, and I would think, for someone like you who is used to being in control, was that, did that even realization kind of make you nervous or put you off? Mm. Oh, that's a great question, Ellen. I think, 
honestly, this process for me was a lot about surrender, just surrendering to that circumstance and the fact that this was happening. I, I honestly think in a way, the circumstance that we faced was easier than if someone had said, well, there are eight different choices and you need to pick one. Mm -hmm. Or if my mom had been in a position where she was still, perhaps they had discovered the cancer before she'd had her stroke and they had said, okay, Rebecca, you need to choose um, whether or not to go through this extreme treatment that might buy you a few more months of life. I think as a mother and as a person, that would have been really hard to one say, God, that sounds really awful. I don't want to do that. I don't want to take that chance. Yeah. Or, or two to say, I'm going to sign up for something so terrible. It will, it will probably kill me, mm. but the treatment itself would kill her. So, and then to have that be your last, you know, few weeks or months on earth. I don't know. That sounds really bad too. Mm-hmm. So in a way I felt a little absolution that we had some of the best doctors in our, you know, tri-state area saying, you don't, this, there isn't an option that we can offer you. Right. You know, there's no choice for you to make. And so in a way that actually helped me just move very quickly into accepting what was going on. And of course, obviously the act of accepting that my mom was gone took a long time. Took That was certainly a process that unfolded over a long time and is still, I think, ongoing. But um, I at least didn't feel that I had, I felt very quickly that I could just surrender to the reality of the situation we found ourselves in. And I honestly think that was one of the things that helped me be able to make choices that were, that were good choices in the moment because I could very quickly move to accepting this is what's happening. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I, some things that did clarify for me though, big in big picture life. One, one thing was I really felt the difference between fixable and unfixable problems. And I, I'm a little angry because I feel like I'm starting to lose that a little bit now. <laughs> but but for yeah, but for at least the, especially that first six months, first year, you know, it was just like we faced the ultimate can't fix it, can't do anything about it. Uh and just to again to kind of face that the full catastrophe, it just sort of put in perspective things that were very fixable. For example, um, oh, I'd say maybe two weeks after my mom died, there was a gifted and talented conference happening in our state nearby. And I thought, and I knew some of the educators who were involved in that. And I just thought my mom has shelves and shelves of, of books on gifted education. And I thought, I would really like for these to go to some teachers who could use them. I don't know when else I'll have time to access all these people. And I called the organizer and said, is there any way I could just set up a table at your event and leave, leave, you know, some of these books that I think might be valuable to people and just put a little sign that says free, please take, you know, please take, please take me free. And they said, Oh, well, sure. We would love that. And, and so it was probably a little too early to be giving things away, honestly, but I also just felt like this was a great opportunity. I didn't want to lose it. Yeah. 
But on my way, I had, I had a whole car full of books. I had packed all these books in laundry baskets. I probably had five or six laundry baskets of books in my car. I was headed off to, you know, go do this thing. And somebody hit me. Uh-huh. And it wasn't even like I was in crazy grief land and I hit somebody. Somebody hit me. This We were on a kind of a, a, a country road and a kid, a high school kid in his dad's pickup truck stopped on the road. Sneaky he was going the wrong way backed up to turn around and backed into me it was the silliest thing ever and I just thought you you know what this is a fixable problem this can be fixed I took the car to the place I got a rental car for two weeks I it got fixed but I had to take I had to take that attitude with things for a long time like oh well huh what would have normally under normal circumstances I would have been on the ceiling about some some incident happening it was kind of like well you know what that's a fixable problem. Yeah. And I even felt that way kind of with people around me. People would come to me sort of, you know, griping about some thing. And I just thought, man, I am facing a bunch of unfixable problems right now. And that sounds like a fixable problem. <laughs> <laughs> and not to ever, you know, minimize other what, other, what people are going through in their day to day. But, you know, little, little work things, little beefs, little little oopsies it was just like it became so much easier to let that stuff go um and that was that was a really big gift I think during that time was I could really focus on what mattered and letting letting some other other things go um I think one that we already talked about was kind of learning how to let other people help me that that was a big one for me and being able to ask for help um uh, and I was really glad to have a job where I could come and go. So my job um, at a university, uh, although I think it is important work, is somewhat flexible. You know, I, I was able, we, this kind of happened before my spring break, and then I canceled a week of class after that. So I basically took two weeks from work, um, away from work. And that was certainly needed time. I don't think I would have been ready to come back into the building before then. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that, because my job was really flexible, you know, if there was a day where I needed to um, take off and, and go home early or um, kind of give myself some grace on, well, I'm not going to get that done today. You know, yeah, lives were not going to end because I let I let something go. Yeah. And I made a I made a point to tell all of my immediate bosses. I told, you know, like the chair of my department and the the dean and the associate dean that I report to. So kind of everyone in my chain of command and I told our HR person because I thought if this does impact my performance, I want them to kind of know what's happening. Yeah. Um but I was careful about not telling I was real careful about who I told at work because um, our, you know, the culture of our um, organization is that oftentimes when someone has a loss, a notice will go out to the, to like all staff list, to everybody. Okay. And I think for some people that's fine, but I just remember thinking I did not want that to happen. And so that was a boundary I set when I sent that initial email to those people. I just, you know, very politely said, um, I'm letting the four of you know, I would really appreciate it if no announcements went out. Um, and it, what it did for me was it kind of made work a safe space and that when I was there, I could do some compartmentalizing. I could go and be task focused and kind of get some things done as I felt I was able to, but I didn't have a bunch of people coming up to me with 
sentiments or or treating me differently at work. It kind of made work a place that I could go. And when I felt ready to be there, I could just be Erin, who is normal, not Erin, who just lost her mom. Yeah. And that was really, that that helped me a lot. Um, and, and, you know, not everyone's able to do that. I know, um, you know, I've I, I've known folks who've had a situation where maybe they were notified of a terrible loss while they were at work. You know, maybe police officers or somebody comes to give them that news in that environment. And then all of a sudden, all the people in your work life are, are intimately knowledgeable and involved in what's going on when you normally maybe would have controlled how you shared that information. Yeah. And that's tough. So it was, it really helped me where work could be kind of a safe space. And I could kind of let that news, I could tell that news to people as I wanted to on my own terms. And I had different versions. I had to make a lot of phone calls, you know, about my mom's estate and different things. Um, and, you know, they're the shortest version I would give on the phone to like the credit card company was, you know, well, we've had, a, or, or let's say to, you know, a workman who was going to come do something on the house. Well, we've had a family member pass away, blah, 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 you know, and then there were other people who really got the full hour long account of everything that happened. And then there were versions in between, you know, like sometimes I would say someone, tell someone, well, we, you know, I've, I've recently lost a close family member or there were other people I would say, you know, my mom passed away last month or whatever. So I kind of had different versions. I would tell people based on you know, who the audience was, what the context was, what I felt they needed to know, and how much grace I needed to buy myself. Because in a lot of ways, you know, it's like, I kind of needed people to know that this was impairing my normal, yeah. <laughs> you know, my normal, the way I would normally show up in the world. So, yeah. yeah. So um, when people learn for the first time, that's another spot where I think the the person you were telling might not know what to do or say. Is there a way that how do you, how would you want someone to respond like ideally, or is there an example of just like terrible responses? Mm, that's a good question. I don't think I've had an example of a, of a terrible response. One thing I did notice is sometimes when people would offer expressions of sympathy, I would find that very move, kind of moving and it would almost like elicit a little bit of emotion. Um, for example, when I had to make all of these calls to different companies, and I mean, you would just not, you would not believe how much time it takes to shut down somebody's life when they were an active functioning adult and they're not an old person. Because I think kind of as people age into old age, we kind of start to shut down their life for them. You know, maybe kids start to get bills are in their name also, or this or that. And maybe they've been moved to a nursing home. So, you know, they don't have as much stuff or whatever. But when you have a person pass away who um, was an active adult, there is just so much that has to be done to shut down that person's identity. Mm-hmm. Um, that, But when I would make these calls, a lot of companies were trained on the people I would end up, the desk I would end up on, the person was trained to deal with that. Like they were talking to people who'd lost someone all the time. Hmm. Um, and so they, I could, you could tell they were kind of following a script, but in a way it was so thoughtful because they would, they would always start by saying, well, I want to let you know that please on behalf of what company you have our condolences, we're very sorry for your loss. And I think people even just taking the time, even on like a business call to make that kind of acknowledgement 
it would always kind of choke me up a little bit. (laughs) And I think just because they're just taking that, that moment to like stop and kind of acknowledge. I just think anytime someone would acknowledge, it was very meaningful and moving. So just little things like, you know, gosh, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, I'm kind of big on not assuming other people's emotions, though, just in in all parts of life. So saying something like, well, this must be really hard for you or you must be really upset. I I think sometimes that's kind of a tricky area because, you know, we don't really know. It could be that someone lost someone they had a very complicated relationship with and and a sense of loss or upset really isn't their first emotion. So I think it's, yeah. you know, it's I think that's one thing to be careful of is not assuming other people's emotions. Um, I it did I did appreciate initially when people would just ask me open-ended questions like well how how are things been going and then I found that I could fill in with as much detail as I wanted to if I really wanted to make a download to a close friend and say oh let me tell you everything I've been dealing with this week or everything I've had to do um, I could or I could opt out and kind of say yeah it's been rough but I think I'm hanging in there thank you so much for asking and just asking those little open-ended questions that people can then open the door as wide or as or as small as they want to. Um, I think that can be a good technique. Yeah, it allows you to kind of manage that as well. And I think your point too about how assuming the emotions, I think that's worth repeating just because um, in the few interviews I've had, it is it kind of comes up. It's like, well... It's like, and especially the phrase like, well, they're in a better place or, mm. you know, like they're, you know, surely there's something better waiting for them or whatever. It's like, because it kind of goes back to, I think we mentioned this before. It's like, are these responses really focused on the person who's in front of you? Because that person mm-hmm. might not think they're in a better place. Maybe the better place is right here with me and not dead. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And I also think, um, you know, with death, a lot of people do move to religion as a lens through which to see death. And I don't necessarily disagree with that. I I was raised um, every Sunday going to a Christian church. I think those beliefs are part of my basic worldview. Um, but I also kind of have a metaphysical view of this, too. I have a lot of questions about, you know, what are we as energy and, and what is sort of this broader God force that is represents this universal religion and I mean I think there's still some big questions to be asked about that and so I think when my mom died I found some comfort in that overall experience of spirituality and metaphysicalness and sort of a belief in an in a a greater force out there that was taking care perhaps of her and of me and and all that but it wasn't maybe my the primary place I I went to, and I think sometimes when people come at you with a real obvious religious message, and that's not the lens you're seeing it through, it could just feel kind of jarring or like a a disconnect. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, you could take that from a religion to I think anything to where like exactly Mm -hmm. your point was like, if you're putting your own experiences on this person's experience, that's probably not going to match. Yeah. That's right. Um, but the thing I do want to chat with you about is you sent me this great article, the dump in, dump out circles. 
Yes. And I, um, so yes, I, I'm, I'm really glad you asked about this, Ellen. I think this is the most A plus number one important thing that's ever been written about grief for the average person. <laughs> uh, and I, I happened to come upon it on Facebook several years ago. Um, a friend of mine named Phyllis uh, posted it and um, it, it uh, was just so wise and it really stuck with me. Um, and what it is, is it's an article um, from the LA Times from April 7th, 2013, if anyone wants to search for it. The title of it is How Not to Say the Wrong Thing. And the authors are um, Susan Silk and Barry Goldman. Um, but I think a better title for this is actually the Help In Dump Out article. Because <laughs> yes. that is kind of their thesis. And what they basically say is, um, imagine that the, the there's a person who's had something bad happen to them. Grief is a good example, but it could be something else, like maybe having a serious health diagnosis or, or something um, that, that we put that person in the middle. And then around them, if you could draw a bunch of concentric circles, kind of like the rings of a bullseye, and then you put different people in those layers, there's kind of a first layer of people that would be the people closest to that person, maybe their children, maybe their brothers and sisters or their immediate relatives. The next layer might be their closest friends, then their second tier friends, then maybe their general colleagues or coworkers, the general other people they might interact with in their life, that we can all make these kind of concentric circles in our life. And basically what they're saying is when something bad happens to someone else, figure out what ring you're in in regard to that person. Am I in the very closest ring? Am I in an outer ring? And then the, the theme of this is figure out where you are and then try to be helpful to all the people who are closer to the person than you are. And then if you're experiencing any negative emotions or anything that, that you need to process, you want to try to find someone outside of the ring to take that stuff to so that we're helping people who are closer to a crisis than we are. We're only showing up as supportive and neutral and, and useful. And if we've got negative emotions or things that we need to process, we find someone outside further away from it than we are who we can dump to that you're helping in and you're dumping out. And basically what that means then is that we're just, we're not going to take our negative emotions to someone else who's in crisis. So that, and I think the example they give in the article kind of went like this, like, you know, a woman's been diagnosed with breast cancer or a terrible illness and, and, you know, their close friends are going up to her husband saying, you know, I just feel so bad about this. I've just been upset. I can't sleep. I don't know what to do. Uh, what's that person supposed to do with that download? You know, what are they supposed to do with, are they supposed to help you, counsel you? I don't even know. But, you know, instead, if they found someone outside the ring who was further away from the situation than they were to share those negative emotions with, to process with, to think things through with, to cry with, that would probably make more sense than taking those negative emotions to the people who are closer to the crisis than you are. And knowing that the people who are closest to the crisis to you are might be dumping out, that you might be a source of listening and comfort for them if, if you know, they're closer than you are. So, anywho, I just thought that was a great 
way to understand this. I think the original article when it was printed, they even had a clever little graphic with these little stick people around a <laughs> around a bullseye, and it was super cute and just just a great thing to keep in mind um, about how to handle this. What I don't know. What do you think of that idea? How does that that thesis strike you? Um, I loved the simplicity of it, especially as someone who has not been through anything really dramatic. I've had very vibrant people in my life. And so far, a lot of them are alive. So like for me, it it's such a clear and obvious way of handling the situation to where it's just like, here is what you do. And I'm very... I'm very literal person and I look for a lot of guidance in a lot of different places. And it was just kind of like, oh my gosh, not only does this kind of give me some examples of what not to say, but it's like, here is how you can support. And if you need support, you do, you go the other way. And it's like, don't, yeah. just don't like, what are you doing? The article really pointed out that if you're take, if your response is to take this to someone close to that person, you're not thinking about the person in the middle ring. So yeah. kind of basically a right. little bit of a check yourself and are you thinking about you or are you thinking about them? That's right. And I, and I think even on, even on really practical things like, um, I don't know, just kind of asking ourselves what, what ring, what, what ring of the crisis are we in? Is it okay if I only send a card? Sure. I'm in, I'm in this outer ring of this. Or, yeah. you know, am I someone who should probably bring over a meal? Yeah, you know, I am. It just, mm -hmm. I think it even helps us place ourselves, you know, as families and blended families and, and lives become so much more complicated. It even just gives us a guide to sort of think about where should I be physically? Where should I be emotionally? And then, and as you're saying exactly, who do I, where, how can I help in and dump out? And if I'm experiencing any, any difficult emotions, then I take that to someone else in my network who's outside of this further away from it than I am. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, yeah. It is important to recognize if you're having like a, a thought about this and they talk about this a bit in the article too, to where it's like, if this person, you know, going through this is bringing up some emotions for you or, you know, help you're suddenly contemplating your own situation and it freaks you out. You know, that's still a valid response, but it's not one that you take into the situation that is unraveling in front of you. Yeah. So it was, it was really, really helpful. And so I was really glad that you shared that with me because that was, yeah, like I said, just really clear, concise, digestible way of understanding what you should be doing in, in crazy situations like this. And I think the ultimate outer ring person is probably a counselor or a therapist because they are always going to be the most neutral. They have no stake in what's going on. They're a totally safe person to, to bring things like that to. And I felt like having um, a grief counselor, a specifically trained grief counselor that I worked with, was just such um, a benefit to me. And I would recommend that to anybody. Well, Erin, I love you so much. And thank you for, for sharing and opening up with me. Well, thank you so much for the chance to, um, you know, to talk about this. I think you've struck on a really important idea here. And I think it's a valuable project. And I appreciate the opportunity to be part of the conversation with you and um you know thanks for the chance to remember my mom today i appreciate it
listening to this episode of Sorry for Your Loss. For links to any referenced sources, articles, or websites in this episode, visit sorryforyourlosspod.com or find us on Facebook and Instagram at sorryforyourlosspod. What did you think? How have you grieved? What helped? Record a message and email it to sorryforyourlosspod at gmail.com and it may be featured on an upcoming episode of this podcast. Sorry for Your Loss was created and produced by Ellen Schwartz with moral support from Holly Mills. Thank you for listening and spread the word. If you really loved what you hear, be sure to subscribe or leave a five-star rating.